please stand for our gospel reading. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, chapter 1, beginning at the 18th verse. Glory to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her, to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son and he named him Jesus. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Would you please be seated. Well, uh, our uh, preacher this morning needs no introduction. No, uh, that's not me. That's going to be our preacher. Um, um, Anne McGuinness is very much part of our congregation, uh, but also... Uh, her day job is the chaplain at the All Saints Anglican School. Um, but you may not know that she's celebrating 25 years ordained as a priest. So, um, yes. So we're privileged to have uh, you celebrate that um, by preaching for us and doing work. So thank, thank you. you. <laughs> There you go. Uh, It's been the most amazing journey and I've been so privileged and so blessed in my 25 years of ministry uh, here and in South Africa. Thank you, Stuart, for being such a wonderful mentor and friend and um, we just share so much together, so bless you and thank you. And the same to Marianne, who was a compadre in the chaplaincy for a long while. And to this community in whom I feel so um, blessed. Uh, just uh, Stu- Stephen Harris, thank you for all that you have done for me over the years too. Uh, but it's just so great to be a part of the family here and to be able to sit here with at least one student. Where did the others go? They were here a minute ago. Uh, and to be among the students of all saints. Uh, my husband has been such a wonderful part of that ministry with me. My bishop once told me that some of us are saints and some of us just sleep with them. (laughs) Thank you to my husband for having been there throughout that 25 years, through good times and bad times. I feel so blessed. So friends, this day we have a sermon um, moving us into Christmas. 
And it was a really interesting story, isn't it, from Matthew's Gospel, that virgin birth, uh, when we read that to young people in our schools, they look at me and go, whatever. Whose socks have you been smoking? <laughs> and if you believe that, you're an idiot, and I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Many of them will look at the Christmas story and say, that's impossible. Because we've taught our children that they have to be rational-minded, that everything has to be evidence-based, it has to be logically possible, and that science and religion do not go together. And so it's really hard to promote Christianity in schools when you've got students who come before us with that state of mind and state of being. So I resolved never to put a stumbling block in the way of students. Because if you put a stumbling block in their way where they can't believe, they simply turn away. If we can keep them engaged, the conversation remains open and we can continue to discuss it. And so we have to look, as I keep saying to the students, not just at the periphery, the lovely story that's on the outside, but we have to delve into the truth that lives within the story. Where is the truth that lives within the story? You and I will both know that if you have tried to tell your grandchildren what to believe, you're fighting a losing battle right from the outset. They're going to say, oh, they're so old. Because our children and our grandchildren have already deconstructed our faith and they've brought themselves to a position where they can't believe it anymore, but then they're stuck. They don't know where to go. And I was talking to Patrick, our headmaster, the other day, and he was saying secularism is on the increase, and I'm not sure that it is. I think that's what happened, is that our students can't believe much of our faith anymore, but they don't know where else to go to find meaning in the faith that you and I know is real and experienced and beautiful because it comes from the long game of love. And so I'm going to open with a little prayer. Love divine, all love's excelling. I offer to you my thoughts and ponderings, praying that they are in accord with your will and purpose. Bless the words of my mouth as they are offered humbly to those who hear them for their consideration and reflection. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I was going to put some slides up there, but I didn't get around to it because I am a quilter. And I'm busy doing a quilt and I made a big mistake right around the edge and I was unpicking it. And as I unpicked it, pondering on the sermon that I was thinking about, I thought, what a beautiful, beautiful way to describe the Christmas story. Not only that, but to describe the love that God brings to us, the love that God birthed in us, the love that God is in us. I'm a quilter. I love the feel of the fabric, the marrying of the colors, the creativity, not only of the patterns, but also the techniques used to bring it all together. I love the challenge of learning the craft, the hours of practice it takes to produce an end product worthy to give as a gift. I've had somebody say to me, you are kidding me. Let me show you what quilting is. You take a perfectly good piece of material 
and you cut it into little pieces, right? And then you start stitching it all together. Somebody said to me, what on earth would you waste your time doing that for? And then once you've done that, you get more and more of these little pieces until eventually you get something that looks like that. And that. And you build it up and bind it until it becomes that. It's a long game of love, this one. But it is the bearer of love. It's the bearer of all the love that I can muster into the person who is receiving this gift. Quilts. Any good quilt worth its thread has its own story. Perhaps made to celebrate a particular event like a wedding or a birth. Perhaps to hold on to memories, quilts made of baby clothes. And as the children outgrow them, into toddlers in the little years. Quilts can be made of that and presented as a memory to the child at a later stage. Perhaps the clothing from a loved one who has passed beyond the horizon of our life and the making of a quilt from the clothing of that person. Some quilters make teddy bears that holds onto the memories and somehow keeps them a little closer Quilts are significant because they have their own narrative, their own meaning-making story made of bits and pieces from here and there. They're bearers of love because the purpose of the quilt is central to it and everything else in the quilt points to the central focus. And for this reason, as I said before, making a quilt is a long game of love. So why a quilt? Well, a quilt is a bit like the gospel stories that we have. We have four of them. Four different authors, four different personalities, four different perspectives. If four of you in this room were to put up your hands and say, I'll write an account of the Christmas story, each one of them would be different. It would hold different patches of the fabric of the story. When you quilt, you buy fabric from different stores, different sources. And some of those stores hold things that are similar in quality and others don't. Some stores you don't go to. And we know that four gospels made it into the Biblios, into the Bible, into that library that is the Bible. There were some that didn't. But four of them did. They're very similar, but I remember some years ago attending a clergy school with a chap called Richard Burridge, who was at the time the, the Dean of King's College in London, and he'd written a book called Four Gospels, One Jesus. And he'd taken the ancient emblems written in the book of Kells of the four different gospels, emblems, that were used to describe the personality of each of those gospels. The first one that I'll talk about is Mark, the shortest gospel. Mark comes to us as the bounding lion. How many of you remember C.S. Lewis's beautiful book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? 
Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, that bounding lion that comes through and bounces, and off he goes. Any of you who've seen a lion running through the wilderness will know. Aslan. So Mark doesn't even bother with this. He doesn't even bother with the story. He lands when John the Baptist comes and proclaims the name. No infancy narratives in Mark. What was important to Mark was the person of Jesus, not the story of how he came to be. And then you go to Matthew. Matthew comes as the teacher, the human face. Jewish. You will have seen that in the reading today. The focus is patriarchal. The focus is on Joseph, not on Mary. It's Jewish. The genealogies which come all the way through to show the royal line of Christ. The dilemma which Joseph faces in this unusual pregnancy, what to do, what to do, how to save face here. Matthew describes how it related prophetically to the Jewish scriptures. No mention of the census here. No mentions of shepherds or animals. The magi appear a little later. But that's Matthew's story. And then we come to Luke. Luke is the most comprehensive of the infancy narratives, the plodding ox. He describes all the relationships, all the connections, all the people. He describes the relationships between Zechariah and Elizabeth, the angel Gabriel and Mary, Mary and God, Mary and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, John the Baptist and his mother Elizabeth, the shepherds, the angels, the family, and Simeon, who had been waiting so long in the temple, waiting for the consolation of Israel. No magi, but the most comprehensive infancy narrative of all the gospels. Now those three writers come are what we call the synoptic gospels. So their sources, the store in which they bought the fabric for their patch, it's all the same, very similar. And then there is John. The Gospel of St. John. Going back to Narnia, I think C.S. Lewis must have used those um, insignia from Kells because he is farsight, the eagle, who swoops up and looks at the big picture of the story right across. He has the big picture. And Richard Burroughs, in his book, says, he does the do re mi. Let's start at the very beginning, says John. And so he does. His infancy narrative starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. Hmm. That is the focus of our quilt. These are not the important bits, really. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of humankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. 
To add more to this, John's gospel is companioned by the letters of John, and the central focus of which is love. In fact, the word love appears 57 times in the gospel according to St. Luke, uh, sorry, it's of St. John, and more often than in any of the other gospels combined. John brings God love from the beginning. It is in John's gospel that we hear the command, love one another as I have loved you. It is in John's gospel that we hear, I am the vine and you are the branches. As my father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Each one of us is uniquely loved by God. Each one of us is irreplaceable. Each one of us is love. And the flow of love comes through this Christ. Could it be that the central focus of the nativity story is God made human in Jesus to remind us that each one of us carries within us the same Christ as the body of Christ within our own selves that we are Christ bearers as the quilt is love bearers. We are, with the entire patchwork that is our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, dearly loved, and we are conduits of love into the world that God has made. This is a quilt the bane of my life, I've unpicked it so many times, that I made for my daughter, it's her Christmas present. Actually her birthday present, I haven't seen her since then. <laughs> and there is a label at the back of this one which says, God has created me in my mother's womb and I am perfectly and beautifully made. Which is a reminder to each and every single one of us of how much God loves us. But it is also a challenge of how we are to love others. Now if I go to our students and offer them this kind of mystical approach which John's gospel offers to us, I'll just leave this here, which is John's um, John is the mystic, the Christian mystic of the Gospels. If I offer this to our students, they're more likely to accept it than they are to accept this literally. It is the truth embedded in here of God's love and how God and through Christ has given us that way to live. We are the divine love of Christ's spirit within us. What an amazing gift to receive. What an incredible privilege to be a bearer of such love. Part of the long game of love that began do re mi in the very beginning when the word Christ brought creation and you and me into being and that Christ that will be in the end and that Christ who came as Jesus to show us how to be our savior.
In a world that is becoming increasingly polarized, where there is good and bad, in and out, right and wrong, mine and yours, such dualistic, futile thinking. And yet we are one. If we each have the spark of Christ within us, then that spark is in everyone. Everyone. And that is important. This abundant love which God pours into us, embraces us with, imbues us with, is given so freely. God loves us because of who we are, not because of what we do. And nothing can separate us from that love, nothing. God is in for the long haul. It is that long game of love which is eternal. It is ours to receive and it is ours to give. And the love which we show is the kindness that we might give in a phone call to invite a lonely person to share your Christmas lunch for you, to the love which conquers the darkness of an otherwise evil. Let me give you an example, and it's a bit extreme, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. If I see the world through the eyes of Christ, I have to notice when that's happening, and I have to intentionally be aware of it. You don't have time to reflect often. In South Africa, where I was born, grew up, and, and exercised the first 15 years of my ministry, it was tough. And I would wake up every morning and say, God, help me to remember today that nothing is going to happen to me that you and I can't handle together. It was my daily prayer. And as clergy in South Africa, and for those of you who might know South Africa or have lived there a while, will know that every single clergy person had to, it was mandatory for them to learn how to be a trauma counselor, to do trauma debriefing, because every day we would have to do something, somewhere, somehow. And I remember doing this course, and on that evening coming home, my husband worked in the motor industry, and he would bring home different cars very frequently. I'd just get out, grab the keys, and drive whatever was in the garage. And we had a very long driveway, and this particular day in the evening, I obviously had come home, was going to go up to the stores to get something for dinner, I don't know, grabbed the keys, my bag, ran out to the car, and off I went. On my return, as I drove in, I got out of the car, we didn't have electric gates, uh, doors, and as I got out of the car, I saw three figures coming up the long driveway to me. <clears throat> one of them pointed a gun at me. The other one, when my husband heard me come in, he'd opened the curtain, pointed a gun at him. The other one was on the road. And I stood there. And in that moment, it's interesting, <laughs> you're just standing. So you do what every good South African is taught to do. You stand like this. Handbag, keys, and you stand. Well, the chap ran towards me, grabbed the keys, got into the car in the garage, drove off with his friends, and I just hightailed it into the back of the house and into the back door because Frank had made sure that was open for me. Now, it's a very discombobulating experience. People you don't know just invading your property, coming up in front of you and threatening your life. And I knew as a priest that it was just a hair trigger away for that gun to, be, to go off. I said to the family, we need to go for trauma counseling. It was my young son who was at school at the time, my hubby and myself. And so we went off the next day for counseling. And I remember the counselor saying to me, how do you feel? Now in the moments in the evening and the sleeplessness before that, you know, with the adrenaline and 
the mix-up of chemicals that happens in your body as you face this threat. I remember the counselor saying to me, how do you feel? And I tried to figure out how I was feeling. In that moment, I was not angry. I did not hate. What I was was incredibly sad. So, so sad. And when I'd unpacked that with her, my pain was, what was it that brought those three young men to a point that they felt they had to do that? What was the patchwork of their life as they gave me this little piece of fabric to add to my quilt in my life? I would have loved to have heard their stories, to understand. And each of us has a patchwork like that in our lives. Each of us does. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I felt in that moment perhaps what Christ might feel. I tried to see them through the eyes of Jesus <clears throat> and saw within them a humanity rather than an evil. Every priest in South Africa was required to do this debriefing. Many of us had to go for debriefing ourselves. It did not make it right. It was unjust, it was wrong, but I was not consumed with that hatred, not even fear. Marianne said last week, fear is the opposite of joy. I think fear is also the opposite of love. I was shaken to my core, but God was with me, as God always is, through Christ, my constant companion. That day, something shifted in me, and it never left me. And it was so liberating not to feel hatred, not to feel fear. And it was good because a lot of my ministry required me to go into places where angels might fear to tread. God help me to remember today that nothing is gonna help to happen to me that you and I can't deal with together. And so that love which is a long game that comes to God in each of us is a flow that comes into us and that we are required to send out. What then, says St. Paul, are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I'd go on to say or sin or our own failures, our own humanity. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the kind of God, love, that God has for us. It is the kind of love 
in the long game that we are required to extend to others. Amen. Let's continue our worship of our